0: This morning we were looking at the uh, condition that I like to refer to as spiritual nearsightedness. There in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 9, Peter says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And as uh, I mentioned this morning, one of the issues about this that is is especially important is the fact that he's talking about Christians here. Uh, you know, we, we sort of expect uh, people of the world to have a materialistic mindset and for their primary focus to be on material things. But he said this is something that can happen to Christians too. <clears throat> and so we have to be uh, prepared for that possibility and, and take steps to protect ourselves and this uh, this afternoon, that's what I would like to look at. Uh, if you back up just a little bit there in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, he says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now, one of the things that I would like to highlight is the fact that at the beginning uh, of this passage, Peter says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence. And that is a cue to us that it's going to require some work. This is something that we are going to have to work at. And then in verse 10, he also says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. To make your call an election sure, he begins this by saying it's going to take some diligence on our part, and he ends it by saying it's going to take some diligence on our part. And the uh, the the you know usually if they begin and end with the same thing, you can be fairly sure that they meant what they said. And in this case, what Peter is saying is that if we want to avoid spiritual nearsightedness if we want to avoid the problems of having a materialistic mindset as Christians we're gonna have to work at it one of the biggest problems with at least some denominational groups in in my mind is I think they're spiritually lazy because one of the things that they will do is they will say well if if God wants to save me he'll save me and if he doesn't he won't they leave it entirely up to God, and uh, they, they believe that man is, is born depraved, he's born sinful, and in order for him to be a saved person, God has to do a direct operation on him. It has to do something to him, and God will choose you if he wants you, but if he doesn't want you, he's not going to choose you. There's nothing you can do about it. That's not scriptural. It's not what the Bible says, but they're leaving it all up to God. If God wants some changes in my life, if he wants some changes in my character, then God will bring those changes about. And if God chooses me to be saved, it doesn't matter what I do. I don't have to work at making myself better. I can go along my merry way. I had a guy literally say that if God chooses me to be saved, if God elects me, then I could commit every sin in the book and it would not affect my salvation in any way. And to me, that's kind of like, well, okay, what incentive do you have not to be a sinner? None. I mean, you think about it logically, which they don't, but think about it logically, if, if what they say is true, unconditional election, That God is going to choose you to be saved and there's nothing you can do about it one way or the other If God chooses you to be saved And there's nothing you can do to change that Then once God has chosen you you can commit every sin in the book and you're still going to go to heaven when you die If God does not choose you to be saved Then you might as well commit every sin in the book because it's not going to change your ultimate fate So what incentive is there to be a, a good person? none but basically they're leaving everything up to god peter says you're going to have to work at it this is something that you are going to have to do and you're going to have to work at it christianity is not as easy as some people make it out to be there are a lot of people out there a lot of denominational groups that will say basically all you have to do is believe in jesus christ and accept him as your personal savior and that's it if you have to do anything at all that's it and that's not the case sometimes we have the idea that once i dry off from the baptistry i have confessed my faith in jesus as the son of god i've repented of my past sins i've been baptized to have my sins washed away once i've dried off i mean that that the journey's over that's all i've got to do Well, that's the end of one journey, but it's just the first step on another one. Christianity is a lifelong process. It requires lifelong growth. It requires lifelong effort. And that's what Peter's talking about. You have to give all diligence to add to your faith virtue. Now, again, he's talking to Christians. So faith is assumed but he says to that faith you have to add virtue virtue is moral excellence and it's not the world's moral excellence it's one of those things and the older i get the more evident this becomes but people as i've heard uh, uh older folks describe it from time to time have the morals valley cats not much and I've made the statement on more than one occasion that if, if you were to take some of the things that are considered to be absolutely normal and uh, they're not any problem with them at all, on television, primetime TV, and you were to have put them on television back when I was a youngster, somebody got lynched. Or at least they would have been sent to jail there would have been a public outcry that you have never heard the like of. how dare you put that filth in front of our children? People would have screamed. They wouldn't have stood for it. And we don't think a thing about it anymore. The morality of the world has changed. Things that were considered to be absolutely unacceptable, bordering on criminal, now are accepted as perfectly natural and normal. We don't have a problem with it anymore. That's the world's morality, God's is not like that. God's doesn't change. So when he's talking about we have to add moral excellence, he's talking about moral excellence according to God's standard, not the world's standard. The things that were sinful 2,000 years ago are still sinful today, they haven't changed man may say that they're fine god did not so one of the things that we have to do one of the things that we have to work at is to add this moral excellence and we need to regain our outrage because we don't say anything about you know some of these things come out and we well you know i don't like that very much but i'm not going to say anything much about it we're the salt of the earth And if we don't say something about it, who will? Nobody. Because they think it's fine. And in our time, you know, what's going to happen? People are going to point their finger at us and call us hate mongers and uh, call us racists and homophobes and all kinds of other things. But they can call us whatever they want. It's what God thinks about us that matters, not what they think. And we need to regain our outrage and start to point out that some of these things are wrong. I don't care if you think it's right. I don't care if you think it's normal. It's wrong, God said so. And that's an end of the matter. Now you can go ahead and do what you want, God gives you the right to do that. He gives everybody free will, you can do what you want. Everybody's got the right to be wrong. But that doesn't change the fact that it's wrong. We as christians need to regain our outrage as part of this adding moral excellence to our lives And point out Now you you speak the truth in love Absolutely, but speak the truth If it's wrong, it's wrong Don't go along with it just to get along So you add to your faith Virtue or moral excellence and to that moral excellence. We have to add knowledge You know, we've talked about this a lot, that it is absolutely necessary for us to spend time studying God's Word. There are a lot of people out there that read God's Word, and that's a good thing. Any time you spend with God's Word is good time. It's time well spent. But we need to study it so that we can look in, into God's word and we can connect sort of disassociated or, or dislocated pieces and say, this is what God says about this. And we were looking at that this morning in our, our Bible study class, that when you look at just one passage, a lot of the time you don't get the full picture. You have to start bringing pieces in from other places to get a fuller picture of exactly what God is saying. And that's what study is all about. We want to be able to look into God's word and say, that's what he says, and that's what he means. One of the things that was a great source of frustration to me when I was a young Christian, I didn't become a Christian until I was about 30, and I've always been one of those kind of people where, you know, just do this. I mean, once I left home just because, failed to become a good reason to me anymore. You know, because I said so was not going to cut it. I wanted to know why. And so I would ask people, people who had been members of the church for years and years and years, well, why do we do this? Or why do we not do that? And I was having a hard time getting answers to a lot of that. People would, well, because uh, that's the way we've always done it. Not a good enough answer. Baptists do things because that's the way they've always done it. Catholics do things because that's the way they've always done it. You know, show me in the Bible where it says this is what we're supposed to do. Well, it's in there somewhere. Where? I don't know. You know, well, you don't have to know book, chapter, and verse of everything there is in the Bible, but you should be able to find it. We need to add knowledge. We need to have more knowledge of what God's Word says. So at the very least, if somebody comes up with a question and says, why do you church Christ people do this? Or why don't you do that? We tell them it's because we're, we're following God's word. We're following the Bible. Well, where does it say that? Well, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but I'll come back with an answer tomorrow. Will that, will that do you? I'll come back with an answer tomorrow and come back with an answer tomorrow. I tell you one thing, if you get into a discussion with somebody like that where you have to go and study on the answer and come back and tell them the answer tomorrow, you will learn more than you will ever learn any other way. I've heard people say that, and it's true, if you really want to learn a subject, teach it. Because you gotta stay at least one lesson ahead of the students, and it will do you a lot of good. But we have to have knowledge. And to our knowledge, we have to add self-control. Self-control is one of those things that without that, nothing else really matters. We have to have the ability to master our passions and desires. Now, this is something that can be extremely difficult to do. You know, it's one of those things I've told people several times. I said, you know, if uh, I like to eat Marsha's good cook, then it's fairly obvious that that's the case. But there are some things I just don't care for. And if somebody were to tempt me to overeat and and gave me a uh, sweet potato pie or a sweet potato casserole, I wouldn't have a bit of trouble with that at all. because I have tried sweet potatoes every way imaginable, and I have never found a way I like them. It was one of those things when the kids were growing up, it was, you know, well, you try it. You may think you don't like it, but try it. Well, Dad, you don't eat sweet potatoes. Okay, I'll try them. Okay, there, I tried them again, still don't like them. You know, you have to be an example for your children. But there are times when I'd have a really, really hard time saying no. You know, a really good cherry pie with tart cherries and some vanilla ice cream on the side, and somebody says, you know, you're gonna overeat that? I don't know, is it possible to overeat that? I've never been able to but you you have to as a christian you have to be able to control yourself control your temper control your desires you know in james chapter 3 james spends a lot of time talking about the difficulty of controlling the tongue he says it's really really hard to do he says as a matter of fact when you come right down to it we have tamed all kinds of animals You know, you can tame a 1,000-pound grizzly bear to the point that you can turn your back on it, and it's not going to eat you most of the time. People have trained killer whales to do tricks. These are huge things. They can eat you in one bite, and we can tame them. And James says, but you can't tame the tongue. It's an unruly thing. He said, if you can tame your tongue, if you, if you can exercise the self-control to the point that you can control your tongue, he says, you can control everything else. It is necessary for us as Christians that, to, to gain this kind of self-control. Because if we can't do it, you know, people believe what you do, not so much what you say. And, you know, this, this whole idea of, you know, do as I say, not as I do, that never works. Never. If you tell people to do one thing and you do exactly the opposite, they're not going to believe anything you say. You have to be able to do it, too. And to, you have to control yourself to do that. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, In verse 24, Paul said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He says, I have to control myself because if I don't, I can preach to others all I want. But when they see me do the same thing I told them not to do, he it's not going to work. And he says, you, you see these people that are competing in an athletic event. And he said, they are temperate. They're self-controlled because they want to win. If you look at top-level athletes, and I don't care what sport it is, everything they do revolves around being the best at that sport they can be. Everything. The exercise that they do, the amount of sleep that they get, everything they eat or drink is all geared toward making them the best at that that they can be. And they're doing it, as Paul says, to win a temporal crown you know temporary acclaim they win a prize you're the best in the world at this today he said well what are we doing we're looking for an eternal crown should we not be willing to do the same thing they do control ourselves to the point that everything we do is geared toward getting to heaven but we need to control ourselves. And to that self-control, we have to add perseverance. Perseverance or endurance is absolutely necessary. And again, you know, when you think about living the Christian life, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's something that you have to work at every single day. You don't get a day off. Over in Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew writer said, beginning in verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are going to endure. We're going to put up with whatever is necessary to make sure that we win. And he goes on and he says, verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. He said, you know, think about what Jesus went through. He said, you haven't gone through anything that bad yet. You need to be willing to endure, persevere, Put up with these things as much as is necessary. And then godliness. Godliness is is acting correctly or having the correct attitude toward God. The word literally means to be devout. Have the correct attitude toward God. One of the things that bothers me more than anything else in the world is people that will not show God's name proper respect. I mean, you even have uh, these texting shortcuts, you know, where people, OMG, you know, where is your respect for God? You know, they throw out the name of God or the name of Jesus or something like that. It, it, it's a common byword. And people say, oh, well, they don't mean anything bad about it. That's exactly the point. When you, when you are profaning God's name, you are using God's name in an empty ordinary, everyday way. You're not considering it to be special, holy, righteous. When you think about God or when you talk about God, you ought to have that idea in the back of your mind. Show God the proper reverence and respect. That was one of those things over in uh, the book of Numbers verses or numbers chapter 15 30 through 36 you've you've got the account of the man who's picking up sticks on the sabbath and uh it's one of those things i've said before that things are not in the bible by accident they're not just there to fill up space they're there for a reason and there in numbers chapter 15 you have what do you do if you sin unintentionally you know, these are the things that you do if you sin unintentionally. And then it's, well, what about presumptuous sin, where a person does something deliberately? And then you have the, this, this little story about the man that was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And they didn't know what to do with him. And so they took him and they asked God. And God says, you take him out and you stone him to death. And then it goes to, and you put tassels on the ends of your garments, So unintentional sin, presumptuous sin, tassels on your garments, man picking up sticks on the Sabbath, kind of stuck in there in the middle. Why is it there? Presumptuous sin. He talked about unintentional sin, presumptuous sin. Here's an example of presumptuous sin. It's not that picking up sticks on the Sabbath was that bad of a thing. It was the attitude that led to the sin. The man said, well, I know what God said. I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath. I'm supposed to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and I'm not going to do it. I want to pick up sticks, so I'm going to go pick up sticks. Presumptuous sin. Somebody who said, I know what God said, and I don't care what God said. I'm going to do what I want to anyway. Godliness is exactly the opposite. Treat God with the reverence and the respect he deserves and do what he says to do. And then brotherly kindness. This is one of those things, and it, it kind of seems like this is a, a lost virtue anymore. You know, people, it seems like today, and it, maybe it's just me, you know, maybe I'm looking in the wrong places at the wrong times, but it seems like today people really don't care very much about other people. They're not really concerned about them. And I can't help but think of the uh, uh, the parable of the good Samaritan. You have a priest and a Levite. You have a man. He's he's been beaten and left half dead. He's been robbed. He's laying there on the side of the road. Priest and a Levite go by. They look, hmm, and they walk on by. I did not cause this man's problem, so I have no responsibility to him. Whatever happens to him happens to him. You know, not my department. Just leave him and keep on going. The Samaritan, who was a man that this poor beaten man probably wouldn't have even spoken to on on a normal day, sees him, takes care of him, puts him up on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, tells the innkeeper, you know, take care of the man. Here's money. If you spend more than that, let me know when I come back through and I'll pay that. He saw a man who had a need And he felt responsible and we do have responsibility to other people now we can't take care of everybody we can't fix everything we can't be everywhere sometimes we just don't have the ability to do things you know and and God knows that but we don't have the right to just say I don't have a responsibility to these people You know, they're not relatives of mine. I don't know them. They don't work where I work. They don't go to church where I go to church, so I don't have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to people, regardless of whether we think we do or not. Over in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul said, "'Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, "'but in lowliness of mind, "'let each esteem others better than himself.'" that each of you look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. We can look out for our own interests, but not our own interests exclusively. We have to look out for other people's interests as well. And this is, like I said, this seems to be a a lost virtue, because one of the things that we have to be willing to do is say, well, if you wanna do that It will be bad for me, but it would be good for a whole lot of other people. So I'll accept it being bad for me because it's going to be good for them. The good that it will work for other people outweighs the bad that it will work for me. And almost nobody will do that anymore. I don't care who it hurts. If it's good for me, it's good. I really don't care about anybody else as long as things benefit me. You know, you you see that all the time, and it seems like more and more. But we, as Christians, have to add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness love, somebody said once upon a time that he thought love was the last thing on that list because it was the hardest one. And that's one of those things. I don't know if that's the case or not. I know love, Biblical love, in the Biblical sense, is hard. I don't think it's last because it's the hardest, I think it's last because it kind of encompasses all the rest. So it's like you go through the the various parts of this and then love is at the end because that one is going to take care of everything else. It's the umbrella under, under which everything else exists, all of these things. Whether you're talking about uh, virtue, whether you're talking about knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, all of those things are under the umbrella of love. Love in the biblical sense, not a warm feeling of affection. That's one of the things, and we, we have a hard time with that. You know, English is a weird language. It's really strange, and we use the same words to mean a lot of different things, and love can mean everything from, you know, I kind of like that, to, you know, oh, I'm I'm romantically in love, to that's the most important thing in the world to me. It can mean a whole lot of different things. What What Peter is talking about here is agape love, which is the love of the will. It's a choice that you make, and emotion doesn't have a thing to do with it. You can even love really unlovable people. But you have to choose to do it. And that's one of those things. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul talks about love, and he says it's the fulfillment of the law. Everything else is contained in that. And I I do agree. It's a tough thing to do. To love people and to wish for them the highest possible good and to work to bring that good about when you can. That's hard, especially when you're talking about people that are not lovable people. Love your enemies, Jesus said. You can't have a warm feeling of affection for them, but you can wish for them the highest possible good. And Peter says that's what we're supposed to do. That's one of the qualities. If we want to avoid the materialistic mindset, if we want to avoid this spiritual nearsightedness, it's one of the things we got to do. Learn love and practice it. And it's one of those things, you know, Jesus did. God did. Sometimes we look at some of the things that are hard, admittedly, in Scripture, and we say, that is just so unreasonable. You know, how can God expect me to do that? How can God expect me to be that way? Well, God can expect that of us because he did it first. You know, you, you, you have a hard time uh, trying to accuse somebody of being unreasonable when they say, well, what do you mean I'm unreasonable? I did it before you did. I've already done it. You know, and if I've done it, how can you say that it's not? I can't, you know, ask you to do it too. Of course he can. Over in Romans chapter 5, in verse 6, Paul said, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did it first. So, of course, he's got the right to tell us that we ought to do it, too. And if we intend to be faithful children of his, it's something that we have to do. Love is the mark of discipleship. John 13 35 Jesus said by this all will know that you're my disciples because you have love for one another we have to have that kind of love first Corinthians chapter 12 verse 31 first Corinthians 12 13 and 14 all deal with miraculous gifts 13 is kind of a uh, parenthesis, because at the very end of chapter 12 Paul is saying you know essentially this He's saying you think miraculous gifts are so great, especially when you're talking about the uh, the gift of speaking in tongues. He says, well, you know, the gift of prophecy is better, and there's something even better than that. I show you a more excellent way. He said there is something better than the ability to perform miracles. How would you like to be able to perform miracles? I mean, legitimate biblical miracles. You could speak in a language that you'd never learned before, you could prophesy, you could heal people, you could raise the dead. How would you like to be able to do that? I mean, I don't know of anybody that if we could legitimately do that, would turn it down. And Paul says there's something better than that. And what is that? And then he goes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he talks about love, charity, the King James says. And he talks about what it is and what it does. Of course, part of the reason that love is better is because miraculous gifts were going to be done away with. Love is always going to be here. But we have a responsibility to be the kind of loving people that God expects us to do or to be. And love God. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Mark 12, 30. And if we do that, we will always to the best of our ability, do what God tells us to do. You know, and if we do make a mistake, it's a mistake. It's not something that we have chosen to do. We made a mistake, and God understands when we do that. But now Peter goes on and says that those that lack these things are nearsighted, even to blindness they have forgotten, That they were cleansed from their old sins you know that as we saw this morning is is a possibility for all of us and the reason for that is is because we live in a material world we have to deal with material things every single day the thing is we don't need to be distracted by them to the point that we bring no fruit to maturity We don't need to let them be the most important thing in our lives. We need to remember that there's something else better for us. So he says, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, add these things that he'd been talking about, you'll never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that we have a, uh, a habit of doing is we think if we get to heaven, we're just barely going to squeak by. We're just barely going to make it. You know, maybe, maybe we are just, just far enough under the radar that God's not going to notice us and he's going to let us into heaven, even though we're not perfect people. We tend to think that, you know, and you know, when you talk to people, are you going to heaven? Well, I hope I am. You know, that's the attitude that we oftentimes have, and it's not right. You know, in 1 John chapter 1, John says, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness you know if if we have the the kind of heart the tenderness of heart to be able to say god i sinned don't try to hide it you know don't try to blame it on somebody else i did it i know i did it i know it was wrong and i'm going to try my best never to do that again god help me with that and please forgive me john says he'll forgive you it's like it never happened If we we get to heaven, he says we have an abundant entrance. We're not just squeaking by. We're not just barely making it. You either make it big or not at all. That's what what Peter's saying here. For so an, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. It's an abundant entrance. God does not expect us to be perfect. And when he says that we have to add all of these things, he's not saying that we have to have all of them to a perfect degree. What he is saying is is that we have to work throughout our entire lives to add them. You know, be a little better tomorrow than you were today. Work at it a little more tomorrow and the day after. Don't ever say, well, I'm good enough, I can quit. Because we're, we're never gonna be at that point But we do, for as long as we live, have to work at trying to add these things and avoid the spiritual nearsightedness that Peter was talking about. It's a lifelong endeavor, something that we have to spend our entire lives doing. But it can be done. We can do it. Peter says so. And we can have that abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It may be that there's someone here this afternoon that's not a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you want to start that process, adding these things to your life so that you can have that abundant entrance, you can do that. You could come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized, have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God, then you need to go to God in prayer. Confess your sin to him from a repentant heart, and ask him to forgive you. And he's promised to do that. If your sin is public in nature, then your repentance should be public as well, so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. Or it might be that there's someone here who just needs to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing.